Assalamu alaikum all. Welcome to a new episode of In Conversation, brought to you in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Right, not long to go till Eid now. Seeing lots of uh, present hunters and uh, shoppers for you know various kinds of meats and decorations all to get the families together. It's really nice to go out and see this atmosphere already being built up. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, so coming back, this episode that we have for you today could have easily, easily run into the many, many, many hours of runtime if I'd indulged myself and more importantly my curiosity um, even further. So in this episode, your host, me, Hizer, Mia, uh, sits with Murad Idris to discuss the idea of war for peace, essentialism and the political. Assalamu alaikum all. Welcome to this episode of In Conversation. Today, I'm very pleased and very lucky to be joined by Dr. Murad Idris uh, to talk about his work, War for Peace. Um, so, Dr. Idris, I want to start off with possibly a very basic question, but just to, you know, get the ball rolling, get the juices flowing, as it were. What do you actually mean by war for peace? Could you please explain this for our listeners? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and uh, first, uh, let me say I'm really delighted to be in conversation with you. Uh, so uh, thank you for uh, the invitation. And uh, also thanks to uh, uh, the uh, listeners for uh, taking the time. Uh, so when, when I titled the book War for Peace, I had a couple of things in mind. The first is there's this trope that you find across the history of political thought um, in multiple languages, the war is for the sake of peace. It's this idea of the, the uh, uh, most assured way, or even forget most assured, but there's one of the most uh, 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 direct ways of attaining peace is uh, by waging war. And in that way, peace becomes a justification, but also an alibi uh, for war. So I wanted to draw attention to the long history and the productivity that this commonplace, that this idea has had from Plato to the present. That was one. Two, mm. uh, you know, it's a war for peace. There is indeed a war that has been raging, uh, I would say. Uh, about um, the place of peace, about the status of peace, about what peace means, uh, to whom it belongs, who's allowed to value it and in what ways, and uh, uh, the, uh, the way that today the idea of peace, the ideal of universal peace, seems to be something that uh, one cannot be against that to say that you're critical mm. of the idea of peace or universal peace is uh, already to draw attention to how there has been a war about peace and the status of peace uh, that's been raging on um, and that we are still in uh, the midst of. Uh, those are the two primary things that I mean by war for peace. Mm. Okay, I want to try something now on the basis of obviously my reading of your work. And obviously, if this isn't correct, <laughs> just let me know. Um, but in your work, you talk about peace and the insinuates of peace. Mm. Yeah, so like security, freedom, things that are usually connected with peace in justifications. Um, so then would you say that peace is an insinuate of war? Oh, that's interesting. 
Um, I don't think I would want to say that because then what we would end up meaning by insinuate and uh, by a kind of parasitical structure is any kind of conjoinment. Mm. But I really do mean something very specific when uh, I talk about the relationship between peace and uh, these uh, other uh, ideas. And uh, uh, again, here there's two primary components. uh, Mm. And quite frankly, it's the kind of thing where you listen to any recent speeches or uh, you read a recent uh, document, whether it's a government document or something out of uh, a newspaper or out of foreign affairs or something of the sort, and you will find these kinds of uh, 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 linguistic structures where rarely do you have someone say, this is something that is necessary for peace. And instead you'll have some justification has to do with peace and freedom or peace Mm. and order, peace and something else. And my point of entry is to try to disrupt or disturb or unsettle the presumption that these things somehow go hand in hand, that Mm. they go together, especially because, as we all know, uh, security especially when it's presented as, uh, you know, and I, uh, uh, you know, the ideal in some ways has tended to mean security for some and insecurity for others. Right. So, mm-hmm. but when people say peace and security, suddenly it's like, Oh, you know, this is a really good kind of security. No one would surely stand against it. So peace ends up sanitizing security. It ends up giving it moral cover. It ends up give, uh, giving it, uh, a, a sense of uh, generality or uh, desirability that uh, otherwise it wouldn't have. Uh, by the same token, security ends up transforming peace. Or we could mm. we could do the same thing with law, the same thing with order, and that now suddenly peace becomes something that we have to think about in relation to, uh, uh, you know, let's say if it's going to be uh, law, then in relation to the juridical field, in relation to particular kinds of policies and their enforcement. Uh, if it's going to be uh, uh, peace and uh, security, as we were talking about before, then it probably will have something to do with borders or uh, you get what I mean. Uh, mm-hmm. th- there's that relationship that I really wanted to uh, unsettle when uh, I wanted to describe these as uh, insinuates. The second piece of it, uh, and here I'll, I'll be a lot briefer, uh, the second piece of it is that um, these insinuates, these terms that have been attached to peace for uh, uh that, you know, across these different genres have been attached to it for a while, for a long time. The, uh, the, it's not a one-off, but rather it's a uh, uh, history mm. of associations that has been inseparable from the way that peace is now presented as a universal and moral ideal for all of humanity. Um, mm. Without the insinuates, I don't think that we get there. Okay. Interesting. Um, and I think coming off the back of that, the reason why um, it's interesting is that you actually mentioned something very briefly 
um, in your answer, you talked about parasitically how peace functions. Now, in your work, you argue that peace functions parasitically, provincially, and polemically. Now, could you please, could you please explain, explain each of these in turn? What do you actually mean by these? And what ramifications does each way of um, functioning have for us? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's one of the uh, core pieces of uh, the book and uh, the mm-hmm. argument that I'm trying to make about peace. Um, and uh, 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 so thanks for uh, foregrounding it. Um, so the, uh, uh, the first piece of it, uh, so as you said, it's three things, right? Uh, we need yeah. to, we've generally been thinking about peace, uh, both in uh, public discourse, but also in uh my field uh, in um, uh, political theory and also in adjacent mm. disciplines as uh, uh, w- we haven't, I think, accounted for what it means to think of it as a political idea, to think of it as uh, uh, having a history and as being involved in a field of uh, struggle as being part of what I earlier described as a war, right? Uh, the war for peace. Mm. And um, that, that's where I make uh, three arguments. Uh, one is, uh, uh, peace is uh, parasitical. So rather than speaking of uh, peace on its own, um, in you know, in general, peace appears with a set of other ideas that uh, are attached to it as though there's a kind of natural connection between them. So peace and law, peace and order, peace and friendship, mm. peace and security, peace and development. And each of these ideas uh, fills peace with a particular kind of content and migrates peace into a uh, 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 an epistemic structure or a discursive structure or a, how about this it provides peace with a set of assumptions that actually belong to those other ideas so that talking mm-hmm. about peace and development suddenly is talking about a certain teleological view of history or a certain set of institutions that otherwise you might not really be associating with peace at all you might not be associating with either the attainment of peace or uh, requisites for it. Uh, So in that sense, peace is parasitical. It uh, arises uh, uh, through, uh, or or, uh, uh, it uh, uh, appears uh, through uh, these uh, other concepts that it's uh, attached to. And that's part of its idealization. The second is that peace is provincial. And uh, here I mean that, you know, there's a, a tendency to treat peace as a universal and moral ideal, something that everyone desires, something that uh, defines perhaps what it means to be human, and uh, something that at its most ambitious is about the planet as a whole, right? Uh, mm-hmm. World peace, universal peace, planetary peace in some way. And uh, uh, what, what I find when you know, go through the history of political thought, different texts about peace, but also contemporary discourses about it, rather than uh, being uh, a kind of universal uh, ideal, uh, there's a uh, a a provincial dimension uh, to peace. And um, there are two ways of cutting at this. Uh, The first is uh, that the idealization of peace reflects very particular, very particularistic desires and fears. So if you look at, for example, Erasmus, uh, who's uh, one of the people uh, Mm. who I devote uh, a chapter to uh, in uh, my book, 
um, uh, one of the arguments that I make is that the apparently universalized desire for peace uh, reflects a, a very specific uh, Christian ontology. It presupposes a very specific uh, subject, uh, namely a Christian who desires the conversion of others. And it reflects uh, the fear of uh, the Ottoman Empire that was uh, part and parcel of uh, discourses during uh, Erasmus's time. So it's that gap between something seemingly universal and general and how it actually appears in discourse as something that is particularistic and belongs to a particular uh, subjects uh, at a particular moment in time. By the same token, when uh, uh, you have these different discourses about what the object or the subject of peace will be, like, you know, the state or uh, the nation or Christianity or uh, 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 the village, the city, right? We can sort of enumerate mm. these. Um, uh, there's, there's a way that, that the, their association with peace is presented as uh, something that is obvious, something that is natural, something that is immediate. Uh, but again, when we look at these uh, different uh, texts and these different discourses, uh, part of what um, I want to draw attention to is the real contingency behind how it is that uh, this mode of affiliation or uh, of uh, political life, uh, how this comes to be associated with peace at the expense of other modes. And this directly, I think, feeds into the idea of peace as a polemical concept. Um, and here, too, I mean it in two ways. There's a kind of surface and easy way uh, mm -hmm. uh, that peace is a polemical concept, and it's uh, one that we can also find uh, in people like, um, you know, the uh, German uh, legal theorist uh, Carl Schmitt, the um, invocations of uh, peace as an ideal end up producing some people as enemies of peace. Right. And uh, one easy way of dehumanizing your enemies is saying they don't love peace. They don't value peace. They don't uh, uh, they don't desire it in the way that uh, uh, good people do something like that. So in that sense, it's, it's a weapon. It's a political, uh, a, a polemical concept. Um, the deeper sense of it, however, is that the way in which peace became an ideal in the first place, the way that peace became something that would stand in for human desire, um, human development, humanity as a whole, uh, that that has a polemical history, that it was elaborated, that it was articulated in opposition to some group that was outside of the desire for peace, one that either needed to be uh, uh, converted in some cases, eliminated in others, or simply excluded uh, is another possibility. Uh, but with mm -hmm. all of these, it's the sense that uh, uh, peace is partial. Mm. Right, so <laughs> in our um, introductory chat, I said to you that your book is very extensive and this is exactly what i meant i have now loads of other questions just for this um so 
obviously some of them you've touched upon more than others. Um, some of them you've touched upon in the work, but obviously I want to make it clear to our listeners um, a bit more what you mean. So you mentioned that you want to see peace as a political idea in your response, mm-hmm. as opposed to what? And I know you've given us a clue, and obviously you say in the work, but could you expand on this a bit? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so generally I found that people treat peace in uh, one of two ways. And I, I don't want to say that I'm the only person or even the, uh, 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 certainly not the first person to be arguing mm. uh, uh, that we need to understand peace as a uh, uh, political idea uh, by uh, b- uh, by any means. Uh, um, but I think the, the in general, there's a tendency to immediately moralize peace so mm. uh, and you find this even in seemingly descriptive or scientific accounts where it's uh, uh, the the way that uh, there's an investment in a uh, uh, piece of something that is good something that uh, is immediately uh, desirable something that is uh, generally unquestioned and something that is presented as uh, a solution um, that's what I'm pushing against. These are ways mm. of treating peace as uh, a moral ideal, as part of an unquestioned morality, and to treat it as a political idea instead, uh, I think is uh, to uh, uh, look critically at uh, not only who is appealing to it and what they mean, but also much more broadly, why it is that peace occupies this position that uh, uh, seems to almost uh, uh, demand or compel people to uh, avow their commitment to it, to, uh, 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 you know, have to continually say that there is a commitment to peace that... uh, uh, it is uh, something that we're all striving toward uh, or something of the sort. Because, I mean, if that were the case, if it is indeed the case that it's so obviously universal, there wouldn't be any need for us to so continually mm. have to insist upon it, right? So the speech act itself is uh, a symptom of uh, something. And that's that's my argument. It is a symptom of uh, treating peace as a, as a uh, moral ideal, um, at the expense of recognizing that it is a political concept, mm. one with a deep history, and that is the history that uh, the book tries to uncover through Plato, Erasmus, Ibn Khaldun, Immanuel Kant, Sayyid Qutb, all of these uh, uh, different uh, thinkers. Mm. And Al-Farabi. <laughs> of course, and Al-Farabi, yes. So... Um... I want to kind of pick up on something that you, um, again, from the last question and from the question before that, um, I think who's very connected to the idea of the political is Carl Schmidt. Now, I want to do something a bit cheeky and rush all the way to the epilogue of your work in which you say that there's three alternatives to the idea of this universalized, idealized peace. And that is the truce, particular peace, and separation. Now, I know you use uh, Carl Schmitt throughout the work. You talk about what his view of peace is, and you use it as comparative as well um, 
you know, between various thinkers and uh, his view of the friend-enemy distinction or the intensity of it or where that bond truly lies. Um, but so I'd want you to talk more about how your theory or your alternatives to peace um, would contend with the friend-enemy distinction or would they work in tandem? How, how would that happen? Yeah, no, thank you. That's a really good uh, question. And uh, Schmidt is someone who uh, I um, think both with and uh, against uh, in some ways uh, throughout uh, my book. Uh, so in the introduction, I kind of position uh, uh, some of the arguments in the book as uh, attempting to go beyond uh, what uh, Schmidt was uh, drawing out. And uh, similarly, uh, the conclusion, I think, uh, has some elements that complement uh, Schmidt's uh, arguments, but also mm -hmm. that uh, uh, try to uh, uh, both uh, elaborate, but also go beyond uh, his thinking. Uh, so the, the three arguments I make in the uh, uh, epilogue, um, those are really less arguments and more uh, 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 suggestions, more uh, uh, brief sketches of uh, uh, three alternative ways of understanding peace that uh, are um, uh, by no means uh, solutions, by no means ideals, right? That would be the irony of ironies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but are, uh, I think, uh, uh, ways of thinking that we can train ourselves into so that we can try to, at the very least, uh, temper the uh, um, way the uh, peace is a uh, weapon. Um, and the one that has the most to do with uh, Schmidt, uh, I think, is uh, the idea of a particular peace. Uh, so um, in The Nomos of the Earth, uh, Schmidt says that uh, uh, the uh, kind of peace uh, that uh, you have in uh, uh, the kind of uh, pre-modern moment uh, is uh, peace not as a free-floating normative uh, general concept, um, but, uh, and here I'm trying to paraphrase, uh, it's a, a notion of peace that is uh, 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 tethered to or uh, uh, concretely uh, connected to the peace of the empire, the peace of the state, uh, the peace of the village, uh, something of the sort. I can't remember the exact uh, phrasing or examples uh, that he uses. But the idea there is that uh, it isn't peace as a free-floating general abstract idea and ideal, but rather one that is uh, particular. So um, uh, one of my suggestions at the end there is uh, for us, whenever we hear someone talk about or say, ask, you know, uh, uh, but are you for peace, <laughs> mm. for example? is to really make the situation and make the conversation much more concrete. We're talking not about peace as uh, an ideal, but rather about a particular peace, the peace of X and Y, or the mm. peace of this particular moment, or a possible peace as opposed to these other ones. And it's precisely, I think, by resisting the uh, nor uh, the, the like free floating general normativity of uh, the idea that we can try to carve out some space uh, for uh, um, uh, transcending uh, or at the very least uh, uh, going underneath uh, the uh, 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 dominant uh, structure of peace. So that's for the particular. Um, 
with both. Uh, so when I say the uh, another possibility is thinking about uh, pieces uh, separation. Mm. Um, I mean, separation, as we all know, can be uh, quite violent, right? Uh, uh, there are different modes of separating um, peoples, populations, territories that uh, will seem anything uh, but uh, peaceful. Um, the problem, I think, has been that the idea that peace requires consensus and requires agreement, um, it's meant that there's been a uh, an assumption that uh, all forms of separation are uh, uh, violent. All forms of uh, sep separation are uh, a problem. But we can think of numerous instances, I think, uh, I'd say, where uh, uh, simply non-intervention uh, mm. or uh, um, a, a certain kind of silence or a certain kind of isolation um, might actually be something that uh, uh, is more along the lines of peace. And that doesn't mean that it's good, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Again, uh, uh, it's not to say that these are ideals, but rather it's to train ourselves into realizing the, uh, the things that uh, uh, are conventionally associated with peace reflect a very particular set of discourses and the uh, they are ones that have tended to sanitize uh, 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 very uh, particular kinds of uh, uh, violence, domination, and hierarchy. And um, uh, when we think about particular peace, when we think about things like separation, and when we think about the temporality of peace not as always orienting itself towards perpetuity, but rather as uh, every piece is a truce at the end of the day. Mm. Uh, it might last for a very long time. It might not. But if we train ourselves into seeing peace as a, a truce, then uh, like the other two, I think that can help us um, uh, try to stave off some of the uh, moralization that has attended its treatment as uh um, the ideal of uh, ideals. Um, and th th this is in large part because uh, that treatment of peace as a moral ideal has tended to provide cover for, uh, uh, again, uh, I think I said this earlier, has tended to provide cover for uh, uh, various forms of uh, uh, oppression, mm. violence, hierarchy, both domestically and globally. Mm. Okay. My next question one, it comes out of your response. Um, I mean, to me, it's quite clear um, what I'm going to, like what I'm going to ask you about there. <laughs> um, but also it actually comes out of a one line in your work. And I can't remember whether it was from the introduction or from the first uh, from the first chapter on Plato's laws. I actually can't remember which one it was. But it's a line where you list um, a group of Islamic thinkers and say these are considered Islamic, and then once upon a time, Plato. Mm -hmm. And I yep. found that absolutely brilliant. That's a brilliant line, and I'm probably going to nick it off you, <laughs> like uh, use it uh, myself. Um, but one thing that showed to me, or which 
I guess not. Well, I guess illumined for me a theme that's running throughout the book. Um, for me, at least, and obviously this is going to be the question I ask, is that you seem one of the central themes of the book is actually to guard against the specter of essentialism mm -hmm. and by extension, a universality. Mm -hmm. Now, would this be a fair statement? I, would this be a fair reading of your work? And obviously I'm giving away that it's my reading. And if so, why is this such a big part of your work? Um, I think it is. So, so it's a lovely way of putting it, I think. Uh, and uh, uh, I think the line, by the way, that you're thinking of, that is in the uh, introduction. Mm. Um, and uh, yes, once, up, once upon a time, Plato was indeed uh, an Islamic thinker, uh, Islamic in quotes. Mm. But, um, um, one of the... Yeah, one of the things that the book does want to critique and uh, uh, refuse is the sense of uh, essentialism. So, and that is in part because of the deep link between essentialism and a certain understanding of uh, universalism. Uh, there's a whole debate about universalism, mm -hmm. universality that, uh, to be frank, uh, uh, I'm not uh, plugged into, and uh, mm. the, I myself don't have uh, deep uh, investments in. A lot of people seem to want to save uh, universality, uh, uh, though uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I must confess I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 so, so maybe I do have a bone uh, to pick in that particular fight. I don't know. Um, so the way that political theory, and I think a lot of other fields, uh, have tended to proceed, especially when it's come to uh, the so-called non-European, the non-white, uh, the non-Western, uh, is uh, to, uh, you know, go back to the same old tired and problematic categories that uh, uh, were used in order to divide uh, the globe, uh, whether it's in terms of regions or in terms of civilizations or in terms of world religions, there are excellent books that have highlighted the problems with each one of these, right? Whether it's in terms of the genealogy of Middle East studies or in terms of Tomoko Matsuzawa's uh, brilliant book, The Invention of World Religions, mm -hmm. or, you know, the... Uh, 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 looking back now at people like uh, Samuel Huntington and, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> it's kind of funny uh, where it's like he, you know, discovered uh, civilizations and uh, now you go, you read that uh, work and it just seems uh, um, uh, simplistic at best. Mm. Um, right. uh, the, there's a way that political theory has tended to uh, uh resurrect these kinds of buckets, these kinds of containers at the same time as, uh, you know, you ask anyone, they'd be like, no, 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 we're super critical of them. What are you talking about? We'd never do such a thing. Uh, mm. And so you end up with uh, uh, the same set of uh, five or six or seven thinkers that are the, the Islamic thinkers and they're mm. important thinkers. And, it is quite possible that reading them in relation to uh, religion or in relation to uh, 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 Muslim history or uh, certain concepts uh, that have an important part to do with um, 
uh, uh, Muslim theology or uh, Islamic law, you know, it may be important to read them in uh, these different ways. But I think what we have seen is uh, a tendency to um, to quarantine uh, or to uh, um, uh, essentialize was the word that you used. I think it yeah. captures this quite well. Um, a tendency to already presuppose the terms on which certain thinkers can be read, should be read, and will be read, purely depending on uh, the civilizational, cultural, or uh, religious terms that the discipline ends up putting forward. Uh, Sometimes these are also the terms that a thinker themselves is uh, putting forward. But since when do we only read thinkers based on the terms that they propose? Mm. Um, so I think there's something really problematic uh, going on there um, uh, with regards to who we read and uh, how we read them. Um, and that's, uh, uh, I, I mean it in part as a joke when I say that, uh, you know, once upon a time, Plato uh, was a Muslim thinker. Uh, but it's also one of the most serious uh, jokes uh, one could make. Make, yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, I was just about to say that it might have been said in a funny way, but it really sparked the idea that actually, yes, you can't. Um, so, for example, in Professor Said's work, he talks about Westernese being founded on the Plato to NATO sequence. And what your joke has done for me is to take Plato out of that sequence and then put him into a sequence with Al-Farabi, Al-Kindi, yes. Ibn Sina, you know, all the other thinkers who have basically um, used him. So that was basically, sorry, that was my um, my thought running through, which gave me Yeah, pause. no, you're exactly right. And that's exactly what I meant. That's exactly what I wanted. It's, uh, yeah, so <laughs> thank you. Uh, you articulated it super uh, well and super clearly and uh, exactly. It's, although there's this presumption about a plato tenato sequence, uh, mm -hmm. the... Uh, you know, is uh, the way the introduction, uh, you know, intro to political theory uh, courses uh, and intro to Western civ courses tend to be conceived. Uh, there is also a uh, uh, Plato to uh, uh, Ibn Sina or Plato to mm. Ibn Rushd uh, sequence. And there is a Plato to Sayyid Qutb sequence that uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think is uh, perhaps slightly different from both of those other two. And yeah. That might be upsetting to uh, a few more people than uh, either of them. And maybe that's, you know, all of our task uh, in life to be slightly more upsetting than... Uh, yeah, than, than, than the last person, <laughs> definitely. This is an episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast wing of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Your host has been His Amir, and the episode has been sound engineered by Zubair Vakil. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes, and please leave a like and a rating.